Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to another Sporting Blog podcast. I say another because it's, I think, the first time we've ever managed to reel out three in a week. But we've, we've had some pretty good guests um, available uh, so far. And we've got another good one today. Um, well, in fact, I've got to say better than good. You're, you're a great guest, uh, Tim. Tim's joining us. Um, in case you didn't read the title of this podcast before you listened to it, I am joined by Tim Crow. Uh, Long time sports marketing leader, uh, amongst other things. I'll let him do the spiel. How are you, Tim? I'm very well, Holly. How are you? Well, um, as we mentioned before we started recording, the sun's out. We've been talking about getting on the golf course. <laughs> I have to admit, that's where my head is at the moment. Um, whereabouts are you in the world, just so our millions of listeners can, uh, can put you into context? Uh, so I live in a place uh, called Sidmouth in Devon, uh, um, two minutes from the beach. Uh, and um, as a result, my head is, it's partly on a game of golf that I'm, I'm hoping we'll have in a couple of weeks' time, but also I'm going to have a swim this afternoon. Um, so, um, yeah, that, that's, oh. that, that's, that's not too bad a place. That sounds wonderful. Um, very jealous of that. So, <laughs> Tim, for those who are listening who aren't, you know, a big majority of our listeners so far come from within a within a network so they're kind of either in sport or media or marketing or, or know me or or the sporting blog professionally for those casual listeners uh, and those who are just in, in here for the sport why don't you just give your uh, give us a quick resume of your life in uh, sport and, and how you got started and all that yeah so i started off um actually i was i was originally working at the, the daily mirror um, in a kind of role involving uh, a commercial role, um, straddling kind of editorial and advertising. And um, a job came up at what was then the Teston County Cricket Board, um, now known as the England and Wales Cricket Board. Um, and I was sort of recommended to that job by various people who were um, sponsors of cricket as well as being clients of mine advertising clients of mine in the mirror so we're going back to 1986 here the dim and distant past and i spent five very happy years um at lords um uh, in fact i wasn't at lords much of the time I was traveling either traveling around um with the tv cameras and the england team um, here and and abroad and had a, had a, had a great time um, and we brought in lots of innovations and sort of innovation I guess has been a bit of a, a red thread running through my career so things like Sunday playing tests because um, bizarrely um, test matches used to start on Thursday um, we'd have three great days uh, the game would be boiling up to a lovely uh, sort of denouement on the Sunday and we'd have a day off <laughs> which wasn't great for TV ratings starting again um, on Monday and lots of other things like that. Um, so I had five great years there then, um, re really because um, my salary had gone up by 23% in five years. Um, and I, I thought there's, there's, there's more to life than, than this much as so I'm enjoying it. Um, I then became principal in a, in a sports marketing agency whose... Um, raison d'etre was bundling this, this great phrase about um i forget who said it but there's two ways of making money in business either, either bundle things or unbundle things um, yeah. but, uh, the, um, 
we, we bundled um, the advertising and sponsorship rights at, at, at Stadia, started in cricket, then did it in football, did it in rugby. So I was a principal of that for seven years and that was sold. Um, then I had a, a bit of time off because um, uh, I've been working like a dog, frankly, for years. And then I became principal in another agency uh, and I was there for 18, uh, 17 years, I think, 10 years as CEO, um, which, uh, which was uh, Synergy, um, which is probably what I'm, I'm best known for in, um, in, in my career, uh, working mostly with brands, actually. That was, that was the, um, the sort of unique point of Synergy is that we, we just work with brands, work with some great brands on some great events, things like BMW on Ryder Cup and um, the Olympics and uh, rugby, Coca-Cola with just about everything. Um, I, I had a, just a fantastic time. Um, but three years ago, I think it is now, just over three years ago, I, um, I'd had enough really. Uh, and I wanted to um, go out on my own. I had lots of itches that I wanted to scratch. So I'm now what they call a pluralist. Um, and I do a variety of things. So uh, I I do consulting for um, brands and rights holders in, in sports. I sit on a number of boards as a non-executive director and an advisor of different companies. Um, I represent um, the world's top esports psychologist, a lady called Mia Stelberg, uh, a wonderful Finnish lady who's um, really done amazing things um, in, in esports and prior to that in traditional sports. Um, and I also now produce sports documentaries, which is something that I got into about a year ago off a piece of client work, actually, which um, turned into a very wise decision because obviously with the pandemic, um, everyone is running out of content. So anybody producing new content is onto a good thing. So that's me in, what was that, three minutes, four minutes? Not that's too pretty bad. good. That's, that's <laughs> pretty good. I there's a good, a good. Well, you, you, you very certainly condensed probably seventeen or very busy years at Synergy into, uh, yeah. into, into one small thing. Um, so, look, we, why really super interested in talking about how the world's changed? But you, um, we actually sort of have a nice little segue there, talking about documentary making, and yeah, I think of course we're in the in a golden age of sports documentaries. Um, I mean that has long been the case. Actually, they've always you know if done well, the subject matter is so emotive and people are so into it that you know they, they have their favorites. But I think the Last Dance has been you know phenomenally successful and, and watched by people who've never even seen a game of basketball before. Um, that obviously is not just about the one guy, the the iconic uh, player that is Michael Jordan, but also the the complete intertwining of, of his life with another iconic uh, brand, which is Nike. Mm. Just sort of broadly speaking, you know, in your experience, how, how has the brand rights holder athlete sort of demographic, you know, how has that moved on? I mean, are our brands, you know, since your time at Synergy, are brands expecting knockout things like, the last dance to take them to the next level now? I mean, is, are things moving that way, do you think? I mean, Nike is obviously such an exception because it's such a titan in, in its category and in sport generally, easily the biggest spender on, on sport outside of broadcasters that there is. Um, how, how have things moved on? I mean, I think some things have stayed the same. Um, so 
reach is still extremely important. Um, and uh, anybody who doesn't think reach is important um, is in the wrong business because it, it is still incredibly important to, to senior marketers and, and senior business people. Um, what, what's changed? I think that I would talk about two, three things in particular. The first is, which really touches on this point, is, is unique content. Uh, ever since um, the, the media landscape changed and digital and social became uh, mass, uh, in terms of, uh, of consumer behavior, then there, there, there has been a real premium on, on unique content and that's only going uh, one way. Um, another, of course, is, is the whole concept of, of digital rights and, and digital real estate and, that, and that's entirely related to unique content, but um, how, how can you carve out and use digital to complement um, what you are doing uh, as a brand. Uh, and then I think the other is, which is again, something that's al always been there, but has accelerated in, in what you might call the digital era, which is, which is consumer insight. Um, particularly with consumer brands, what they are obsessed by is if you can tell them something about their their target consumer that they don't know um, that they can that they can leverage um, and obviously the, the the digital era and the the ability to collect and analyze data um, has taken that onto a different level and become more important so I think those are the those are the three things that have, have really changed I mean it's important to go back actually and remember how sports marketing was created and how different it is in the state to Europe. In the States, because sport was always part of commercial television, um, the ad buy was always really, really important. Um, so that's why still to this day, although it is changing, you don't see a lot of on-field branding at in the major american sports because the ad buy was always part of the gig um uh, so you know you had a uh, you had that particular scenario whereas in europe where sport was very much part of public service broadcasting non-commercial broadcasting the emphasis was always on getting branding into the stadium on onto the camera yeah. which is why you see lots of advertising on 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 Around the around the playing surface and on the shirts and all that kind of thing. So that, so that you know, that an awful lot of what we see today sort of springs from those two tributaries. Um, but but what is changing is this digitization and this and this sort of you need for content. The stuff that happens around the game rather than during the game, if you like. Yeah, I think that it's a super relevant point about the uh, the ad spend. Um, you know, in, in my experience, of course, the NBA, I think only really recently were the, the first of the major American sports to open up uh, branding on their shirts other than the manufacturer and, and their own uh, logo as the rights holder. And I'm sure there's more to come in that market. But um, it, it's, it's one of those traditions. I don't think, for example, if you were 
Robert Kraft, the owner of the the New England Patriots, that you're in any rush to plaster a brand on the front of your shirt. I mean, they also make a lot of money anyway. I'm not yeah. sure they, they need quite the same commercial deals as football clubs do here, for example. Yeah. Um, so obviously a digital thing where, you know, of course, do you, since you've been in the sort of documentary side of it and, and that, or, or putting your head into that headspace, do you find yourself thinking about how you might interweave a brand story into it to, to either make some money out of it, of course, or, you know, as a requirement is because I think they did that well in the last dance. Of course, there was a whole bit about how Nike, you know, came out, but I mean, I'm sure they've had a, a hand in, in helping to fund that somehow, or at least some commercial side of it. I mean, is that coming to your thinking at the moment? With, with the, the stuff that I'm working on at the moment, no, because the, the stories are, are such, um, and the, the, the interest in terms of uh, funding is such that we, we don't actually need to go to the market and, and sort of top up the funding um, from brands. Um, but there are projects that are coming down the pipe where that is very much part and parcel of it. Um, I think the one thing that I've learned um, over the years and certainly since I've, I've been much deeper into it in the last year or so is that it, you just have to start with, with a, a great story and nothing can compromise that. And yeah. forcing, unless, unless, unless a, a brand has a, an authentic reason for being there, um, then you, 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 you sort of force fitting in there at your peril actually. Well, this, yeah, I mean, this is an interesting point in general. I mean, uh, in, in almost everything we do now, if you, if you consider the amount of noise there is around every piece of work or, or whatever anyone's doing, it is amazing how, you know, time and time again, and especially in the eyes of people that assimilate and present information like Google, the quality of the content rises to the top, no matter what your subject matter, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we were talking the other day about that old, um, oldish advert the the carling pub team advert which featured all the ex England yeah. players you watch it now it's, it's brilliant but the quant you know the brand of course is you know right at the end of it was the pub team it'd be the best in the world and all that stuff but the quality of the of the production and the and the topic and the nostalgia and it always rises to the top right and i think that's the same in any of this sort of stuff yeah and i think what was great about that and, and you know so many ads that feature players, athletes fail because they don't get a great performance out of the talent, whereas they got really great performances out of, out of those guys because actually they're really enjoying themselves. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's so important. But so, so many ads like that fail because, the, frankly, they just don't get a performance. Well, whereas, and, and the authenticity is just not there. You know, yeah. I, I found yeah. out in the week that actually they didn't know that it, you know, the pub team they were playing against didn't know. Yeah, they were, you know, things <laughs> genuinely authentic. And, you know, you look at the, the going back to the last dance, you know, when, when Michael Jordan's being interviewed and they're showing him on it on an iPad, you know, what people have said, these are things he didn't know before. You're seeing an authentic <laughs> yeah. response and yeah. you can't buy that. And I think that's the same thing in why Amazon documentaries like All or Nothing, the, the American football version rather than the, the premiership yeah. version thus far. Yeah. And um, Netflix's Last Chance, you have been the same, reasonably. You know, they're, they're, it's authenticity, right? And I think 
yeah, authenticity and great stories. Sport is full of amazing stories. Yeah. Um, you know, the stories of the people, you know, in, in the arena, the stories of the people who were watching and their stories. I mean, one of, one of the things that, that, you know, when you strike up a conversation with somebody who happens to like, you know, the same sport or the same team as you, immediately you start selling to, you start sharing stories, don't you? I mean, that's yeah. part of the it. And that, of course, is why there is this interest in documentaries because people, you know, that echoes with people, that, that urge for storytelling, which, of course, goes way beyond sport. It goes into a whole bunch of other areas. But the fact is sport just produces those incredible stories. Um, and it does it as you're watching. And, and it's not, you know, it's not like the theatre or the movies where you walk in and you have to suspend your disbelief. Yeah. <laughs> It, it is happening. It is being made up in front of you, um, and and there is no script, and, and that creates the most amazing experiences and, and this this sort of shared feeling and and storytelling. Yeah, and that's you know that you started off um, explaining to us your background in cricket originally, and you know there's no greater sport than storytelling uh, sorry for storytelling than cricket. I mean, if if you've played any cricket, you know basically the whole time you spend at the pavilion or in the pub afterwards is telling stories about the game you just played. Um, especially if someone's dropped a catch or done yeah, something I'm extraordinary. Tonight, actually, and I, I guarantee you that in a year's time, I won't, I probably won't remember what, if anything I do on the field, but I'll certainly remember the beers afterwards and all the conversations. Yeah, of course. You know. And, and, you know, some of the best sports books I've read personally, or I've enjoyed the most have been cricket. I mean, the, 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 that game itself is, is you know, especially test match cricket is the is a story about what's happening on a field for four or five days yes. and um and, and when you when you roll back and i think we'll get into nostalgia in a minute but when you really dial back to you know i've got i can see on my bookshelf here i've got books about harold larwood and, and dennis Lilly and those guys you're talking about such a different world they played in then and you know the idea of touring a country for months at a time is so alien now you not, not yeah. You know, if you're in the States and you said to someone, you're going away to play baseball for two months. Yeah. You know, yeah. what comes out of that are, are stories, especially in the days where the journos were having a beer with the players after the match, um, which I think... Well, yeah, still... I mean, you know, British Lions, you know, yeah. they'd be away for, you know, six, nine months. Um, Ashes tours, it would take them months to get there because they'd have to go on a ship. Um, you know, extraordinary, really. Just a completely different, different time. What do you, uh, I, I'm, I bang on about this all the time and I, I'm not going to put words in your mouth about it, but what, what role do you think nostalgia plays in, in marketing? I mean, we're specifically talking about sport. There's a million different examples of nostalgia-led marketing, but in sport specifically, or have you had any experience of working on campaigns that have really tried to tune into to people's nostalgia about sport? Yeah, I, I think... Um, I mean, it's a really, you know, I, I, you and I have talked about it and you, I remember you did a, a vlog once on something that I, 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 I can't remember what it was, but it was about retro marketing. And I think it's, a, it's an inherent part of great brands in sport. So if you look at, um, and, and apologies to people who aren't fans of Manchester United or Liverpool in this next sequence, other teams are available, but... Um, <laughs> When it comes to the great brands of English football, um, United and Liverpool um, have a depth to both of their brands, 
because of what's happened to them in the past. You know, there's been tragedy, um, you know, there's been teams rising from uh, those tragedies, um, what's happened to the, to the fans on the terraces, what happened to the Busby Babes, success and failure, incredible stars. Um, you know, that, that, that nostalgia, that tradition, that heritage, whatever you want to call it, is why they are such deep brands and, and, and why they have so many fans around the world more than, more than other teams. Um, I mean, success is a, a huge element to them, but having, you know, having worked with those clubs and sponsors, I know that, that the depth of that and the power of that. So that's a, that's a key thing. I think the other thing is that if you look, I mean, we've talked about cricket, cricket and certainly it's also the case with baseball. There's an element to that um, which you can treat with a high degree of cynicism, if you wish, but about sort of reminding people when of a, of a time when things were simpler and better. Baseball, you know, the great baseball stories and, and a lot of great baseball marketing is about that. 100%, um, yeah. The, the movie Field of Dreams is all about that, okay. um, and and cricket as well. You know, there's a there's a there's a there's an avenue of the cricket river which you don't have to do much to the puddle, and suddenly you're you're on the village green. You know, having having a beer. You know, in the in the 18th century, yeah. uh, and it's quite sort of the village idyll. Now, obviously, that as an image is something that only appeals to. A certain number of people it's not necessarily the way that you would try and recruit for example a new generation of fans but the fact is it's it's absolutely intrinsic to those two sports um and uh deployed properly it can be incredibly powerful um wimbledon is the same um you know the the, the whole wimbledon ethos of tennis in an english country garden um, it's all about heritage and nostalgia. Yeah. The whole thing. You, you couldn't imagine Wimbledon as a brand without that, could you? No, and you can look at, you know, um, the, the three other Grand Slams, the, the two that are the sort of polar opposite of the US Open and the Aussie Open that are extremely, you know, their brands are fresh, modern, clean, and it's all about that. And it's about making noise and all the rest of it. And this is not, by the way, neither of these are better or worse. It's just saying that's how they're presented. Whereas the other two, the, 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 the French Open and Wimbledon, are much, much more rooted in the tradition of the event. Mm. And, and as you say, the nostalgia. I mean, this comes, you know, for me, this comes back to broadcasting as well because, you know, memories are made watching big events. That, that the World Cup pulls in, in my opinion, the World Cup, of football gets as many people as it does every year because you're supposed to watch this thing because you know you watched it when you were a kid it was big and the nostalgia look, it, it's no coincidence in every like you know title credits of every world cup show it shows you you know maradona and pele and all the rest of them right i mean it's right it goes back to that and yeah. wimbledon's the same um it you know we will talk about McEnroe and 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 beyond borg until those guys in fact long after they're gone um and that's not just because they were brilliant players. It harps back to a, to a time again. And, and that yeah. was a changing of an era. You know, that, that was when, you know, you brought, we can talk about tennis all day. Um, but I, 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 it kind of, I mean, retro really sells and it sort of, yeah, it kind of makes me laugh in a way that Stan Smith Adidas is so popular because 
you know, you mentioned Borg and, and McEnroe. You know, when I was a kid, you know, the, the dominant players at, at Wimbledon were, you know, Stan Smith and, and, and John Newcomb and these guys. And they, they you know, they weren't, they weren't particularly interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, St Stan Smith in particular, you know, he was just a big boomer, you know. And then um, along come, you know, Nastasi and Borg and McEnroe and Connors. And, you know, they're kind of rock stars. But yeah, yeah. yeah what, 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 what adorns the feet of tens, if not hundreds of million people around the world is this brilliant, you know, way that Adidas have turned the Stan Smith, which was a big sneaker back in the day. I find, else, yeah, you know. I find those examples are really interesting because, you yeah. know, talking of, you know, specifically about sports marketing and, and using the power of the athlete. And that was about the time, you know, for me, especially in tennis, you, you say it, I mean, John Newcomb uh, and his Australian predecessors, Rosewall Laver. I mean, they were still in the old era of the professional being a lower class yeah. citizen and yeah. being a worker and you're yeah. playing to entertain a crowd your personality should be subdued and yes, you'll get a clap when you hit a good no, shot. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's the same in the older, even older sports of real tennis and, and rackets. There's this tradition of the pro, you know, doffing his cap and, you know, running in the bar. There's, there's actually a real tennis court at Lords. Yeah, there is. Yeah. It was, it was about 40 yards from my office. Yeah. Um, so many was the time when I was at Lords that I would, um, just wander down there with a sandwich at lunchtime and watch um, watch the, watch a game going on. Fantastic sport. It um, is. I mean, you'll find a, another podcast actually about it um, if you go back a few weeks as an avid player myself. But that that game as the predecessor of lawn tennis that was one one of the the, the you know the traditions of, of of real tennis was the pro was very much a second-class citizen and, and and so much to say even at queens now in real tennis and rackets the world champions of rackets which are and their sister sports real tennis and rackets the rackets world championship board is there and if you're an amateur player it's mr xyz a world champion and if you're a yep. pro it's just xyz <laughs> uh, and that but those those days like of labor and the open era and coming into professionalism really interesting comparison there because you're right i mean it wasn't just because borg was good looking and mcenroe was like this brash american guy it was because the game was essentially changing as well and of course they they were the perfect guys i mean look interesting case in point i mean my dad had all the feeler gear as a when i was younger like the whole okay. lot but i mean i i would have thought i know it's, it's still knocking around a bit isn't it and he, he i think he had one or two business ventures but that might have been one of the first actual real commercial success stories of moving clothing from on court to, to off court. I think probably the feeler stuff in tennis because yeah, you know, I mean, it, it was, it, it was, um, it was incredibly distinctive and, and it is, it's another one of those brands. It's just a shame that it sort of disappeared. You know, so many of those brands from that, that era, you know, have gone, you know, the sportswear brands, the likes of Stylo and, um, yeah, and I mean, it's just, it's a, you know what's sad. What's sad about it is that you know, as you say, brands like that, Diodora, um, K Swiss. I mean, they're still K Swiss trainers knocking around, but they all ended up, and this is an even bigger 
shame of a brand. They all ended up at JD Sports and places like that on yeah. the £10 peg. And those are the things you used to have to go to a place like Lily White's, which for those that don't know is a very large sports shop with a very long history in, in the West End of London, now owned by the same people, I believe, that own JD Sport. Um, and now that shop is full of that and it's basically seen as cheap gear. Yeah. And that was, but they were originally, you know, this is brands that had come straight from the TV watching it and you could suddenly buy it, which I know we take for granted now, of course, but it was good stuff. I mean, that, this is why. There's I mean, very, there's yeah. a, sorry, there's a very piece in um, uh, this month's The Cricketer magazine, which, um, which is well worth a read because it's all about the theme of the issue is actually all about um, the virtual disappearance of, of, of the black cricketer in this country, which. Yeah. Um, people have, have finally woken up to and, and um, something's being done about it. But I digress in that one of the other articles in the cricketer is about the Slazenger brand, which, which was a huge brand in cricket. Slazenger bats yeah. um, were absolutely key to the game back in the sort of 70s and 80s. And um, it, it, it concludes with bemoaning exactly what you just said, that Slazenger has now become... Um, unfortunately, just you know, another cheap brand uh, in that stable. But I, you know, I, I, the thing about retro selling, I remain convinced, and I think you and I have talked about this before. Um, you know, so you look at the vast majority of modern cars, and they are unbelievably boring in, yeah. in design. They, they, what, what, they, what is under the bonnet and the technology may be sensational. I don't doubt it for a minute. But the actual look of the cars themselves is. is terrible they're so boring so bland you go back 30 40 years and you know, this is why classic cars and i'm not just talking about the high-end stuff i'm talking about you know cars which at the time humble fords and humble Vauxhalls and all this sort of thing that they're now seen as sort of design classics i remain convinced that if some of those manufacturers reproduced those great looking cars from the 70s and 80s and put under the bonnet the stuff that they're putting under now, I think they would sell in their millions. I really do. Because it, it just there were such great looking cars. Yeah, I don't disagree. I, I, I don't disagree. I think the sentiment's absolutely is absolutely right. And like, I don't think there's um your point is borne out for me by you know when um Tesla launched that truck thing. Um, yeah. The yeah. weirdest looking thing you've ever seen. Do you know what? And it's selling out before they've yeah. even created a prototype. And I do wonder, you know, in part, if it's because people want something distinctive. I mean, I, we'll get, I don't mind talking about cars for a second because, it's, <laughs> well, it's an interesting consumer angle thing, though, isn't it? And it's much the same with the sport. I mean, I'm not saying the premiership is bland or by any means because, you know, on its day, you get a great product. But, you know, year after year, yes, okay, one team tends to run away with it. Or, or it's a little bit closer than a few weeks to go. But everyone's looking for something a bit different. I find with the car thing, like if you've got kids and a dog and all of this stuff, you've got a, now it's SUVs. There's no estate cars anymore. Those have gone. But and every SUV looks the same. It has the same floor plate and probably all manufactured in a very yep. similar way. Yeah. And even sports cars to some extent, which you don't see as many of because people just think, fuck it, I'll spend the money on a, on a faster SUV or Land Rover or whatever it is. I saw a McLaren, I guess it's a P1 or something, go through the roundabout near here the other day. And it, yeah, it looks nice. I mean, of course, it's an amazing looking car. 
But, you know, does it really stand out like the Lamborghini Countach used to stand out? Or yeah. like even a Porsche 911, like the old school ones? I'd... Well, I'll, I'll, I'll share a similar story. So the other day, um, we, were, um, we, were, we were walking back from the, from the beach and we were just, uh, we took a seat at um, a bar on the beachfront and uh, a Ford Capri appeared. And, yeah. and everybody double double take took a look at it and as it parked you know people were so now imagine if you suddenly i mean you know frankly compare that you wouldn't you wouldn't want to buy that right now that car right now with that engine because it would spend a lot of time having to be um done because the, the, the engineering wasn't brilliant but if you release that car now and did it at a reasonable price but as i say with today's technology people would be all over it. I mean, there were hundreds of people looking at this car. It was incredible. Ford Capri. Yeah, and well, look, the other thing is, it's not, it's not just about, um, you know, nostalgia, because I, I look at those, and I, I remember that from TV program, Only Fools and Horses or whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, but again, like, when do you see one? And I, it is, it's, the, it's the sort of uniformity of everything, I think, that people get a bit fed up with. And yeah. I think this is where... Um, as, as we sort of mentioned it, retro marketing and, and playing on nostalgia really comes back because I think uh, in previous years or let's say previous decades rather, because you weren't subject to so much information and you couldn't get hold of it, you know, Christmas being the best example, the Argos catalog was about the most exciting thing that ever came through the door. Um, because that was when I got my chance to see all the new kit, right? That's when I saw yeah. that Yamaha another sporting brand that's gone to the wall, that Yamaha keyboard that, you know, I would never see. And the Yamaha tennis rack, all the weird stuff that you'd see in the catalogue. And yeah. the point was, there was no uniformity of info then. You, you got what you could. And, you know, if you were into something, cricket, golf, whatever, you had to subscribe to a magazine. And that's where you'd pick up your, your inspiration and, and your reference points for what's new and old. Now, of course, everything's available within a millisecond. So... I do, I do believe, uh, and you're right, I think it's maybe not always thinking about attracting a new set of fans, but keeping, well, as you know, keeping the ones you've got is just as hard a task, if not harder than um, attracting the new ones. And I do think that in football, they would be minded to, to think back a little bit, especially Liverpool now. You know, they've got a chance. This whole 30-year thing, great, whatever, well done. But they've got a chance now to, to so some seeds with 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 their newer fans about how good they really were in the past yeah and i think you know retro does done done in the right way retro really does appeal to the young you just have to do it in the right way the way you cast it yeah uh, but um it it does it does sell to 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 uh, across across the ages i mean if you've, you've you've mentioned yamaha keyboards and some you know we could go off on a whole tangent there because one of my favourite bands is Emerson, Lake and Palmer and the famous mm. fanfare for the common man riff. That's Keith Emerson on a Yamaha GX1. But let's not go there because we'll start wow. talking. Well, this actually came up on, on the golf course the other day because we were talking about other brands that... So someone had bought a set... Someone I was playing with had bought a set of um, blades. Uh, he's a pretty good player, mid-teens -handic uh, mid handicap, you know, fine. And these blades were Wilson's and we were saying, wow, oh, you know... Wow. Wow. I mean, yeah, Wilson as a as a brand, obviously still pretty big in tennis. As long as Federer's playing with the um, with the rackets, I use Wilson rackets. Um, 
but they were very big in golf but they were at one point they kind of got relegated to the starter set group and then yeah after then, john john daly i think used so the big bertha and all yeah. that. after that a bit of a decline i think porrig harrington um i think he used wilson's didn't he because it's all but, about winning do you think then of of some other you know brands like dunlop and yeah. um, which were big consumer brands, you know, and at the time, big, you know, it's, it's all comparative. But well, Dunlop I, and Slazenger, of course, were the same business. That's right. And Slazenger now probably most famous for making tennis balls at one tournament. Um, yeah. Dunlop, I think, still makes squash balls, but and squash rackets. But you know, you probably wouldn't find many knocking around, uh, you know, in, in modern tennis rackets. But it, it obviously brands come and go that's nothing new but again the sort of nostalgia side of it it's uh, mm. it's quite powerful now just whilst we were getting off on the tangent as 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 I'm known to do um talking to liverpool and premiership and all of this big stuff um we had a, a young man or we still do have a young man writing for us at the sporting blog at the moment who wrote a very interesting piece about um berry uh, Berry Football Club, um, which sadly is no longer with us, or, or at least it's only with us in spirit for the moment. And um, he had some very good interviews. He spoke to a local MP and he spoke to ex-players and coaches and, and, and whatnot. And the, the, the nostalgia uh, feeling came out very much, you know, that a non-league football club wouldn't be with us, but served a community for so long, 100 years, etc. And um, I think it, maybe it's brought home to a few of us that there is life outside the Premiership. Now you are a fan of a of a National League club, um, Halifax. I am, and um, which actually is a the National League, the Vanarama National League, is a sports marketing triumph. Just like to put that out there to everyone. <laughs> um, and I think you know, of course, we're guilty because of wanting monster engagement and all this stuff all the time that we don't realize there's life out of the premiership how we know that there that a lot of these clubs are not in rude health um how how do you think commercially they're going to make it through these next few years and you know what does the future hold for for non-league clubs in in your opinion um well i think firstly running a sensible budget so uh you know Halifax, we, we went into administration um 12 years ago i think it was and the economics of the club were were crazy um, and since coming back uh, we we have run a very sensible budget um, it, it's still very tough um, but uh, and you and you need a bit of luck you need cut runs you need to find I mean we we found Jamie Vardy and we lived on the money that we made from selling Jamie Vardy and Fleetwood selling Jamie Vardy for a long time um, but but that's the first thing is you've got to live within your means, um, and unfortunately, and and the higher up the higher up you get until you get to the Premiership, where it doesn't become an issue anymore because you're earning so so much money. Um, but you know the Championship and certainly the National League, you've got the economics of the madhouse. So that's the first thing. Um, I, I think the second thing is is obviously that. The centre, um, the football league, uh, in particular, because it, it is at the centre of these things. The governance needs to be better. 
um, because there, there, there is no doubt that um, when it comes to um, the ownership test and how these clubs are run, there needs to be um, uh, better processes coming from the centre because things are things are allowed to happen, whether it's the change of ownership of clubs or how clubs are run that, that are putting clubs in jeopardy. It's ridiculous. I mean, the Wigan thing is just fucking absurd. I mean, yeah. it, it, so, but it's beyond. It's like a it's like a story you couldn't possibly make up. Yeah, and then and then it's happened, and it's almost like you know I'm not going to get into their case too specifically because it's all still going on. But you know, you do step back and think: Have you learned no lessons here? You know, from the past, and uh, and and people are trifling with things that. Although these aren't giant companies, these aren't huge organisations that employ millions of people, they do affect a lot of people's lives, and it's it, it, it's it's sad, really. It's not just sad; it's it's sort of depressing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And 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 look, I'm I'm sort of torn some of the time by by what I see. So, for example, um, with with Salford, with Gary Neville and the Class of '92 club now. You know, I, I accepted what Gary Neville said, which is he basically said we're going to throw the checkbook at this thing because we could try and do it running running the club in a sensible way when it came to you know not losing money, and that would probably take us five years to get promoted, or we could throw the kitchen sink at it and get promoted straight away. And I get that, but the problem is that creates massive instability in the marketplace because if you're if you're paying you know, your strikers, £4,000 a week, then the agent of every other striker at that level suddenly thinks that's the going rate. So it does have consequences, and that leads to to, to the sort of problems that we've got. But but to answer your question, Ollie, look, I mean, I think, as ever, it's going to, it's going to remain tough. It's going to need sensible budging and need a bit of luck. But the resilience of these clubs is incredible. You know, Halifax, as, as many others, we bounce back. Um, because of the nature of um, the break and then having to play in the playoffs, which unfortunately we, we got beaten the first game, so we went out the first time of asking. But the club had to go to its fans and had to go to it, to the town to ask ask for money to help them compete in the playoffs because obviously there was no gate money coming in and gate money is a huge part of our revenue. And you know the, the 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 fans and the town responded, and we raised over fifty thousand pounds. And really, it's that that's the sort of metaphor for how these things are going to carry on, because it is something that's that's precious. Uh, I imagine that even people who probably haven't been to the show for years and probably support bigger, more glamorous, more appealing teams, I imagine that even some of those people dipped in their dipped in their pockets to help out their local club. And yeah, and you know, I, I suppose hope, I hope I hope that persists. And, and to be honest with you, in the in the current circumstances, that's the only way these clubs are going to persist. As long as we also have sensible budget, budget management by the clubs themselves, and I think better governance um, in the centre. Yeah, and and I, I actually agree. I think the 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 easy bit and is to sort of turn around and say, well, this, this game's so top-endy that shouldn't some of this money fall down? I mean, you're talking about 50 grand, um, which, is, as you know, for a, for a premiership footballer, that's, that's below the average wage. 
um, for a week. <laughs> um, so it, it's very easy to do that. But of course, it's not, it's not for the Premier League to be the solver of all problems. But I, I, I don't know whether it comes down to at some point thinking of having a, a, some sort of joint or centralised governance of how a, of, the, of what the entry requirements to the league really are. Um, because I, I'm with you. I, you know, I, we, same lad who wrote about Berry um, has written something about AFC Wimbledon and we've got a couple more uh, interviews from, from AFC Wimbledon um, stakeholders to come on the blog. And they have grown organically since their founding in 2002, I think it was, from doing trials in the park. Um, and now they're just building a 9,000-seat stadium at Plough Lane having got investment and all the rest. Now, I don't know if it's because it's fan-owned and um, sold to a, to a fan's trust and therefore there's some um, more rational heads and, and less greedy heads about them, but it does show it can be done with a bit of patience. Well, actually, I mean, to be fair, it's unbelievable to be in the, the second the League 2, you know, less than 20 years after your formation, but still, um, it shows it can be done. Um, I, I just wonder whether there's not more help from elsewhere that, that could come when but I suppose the temptation then is that clubs don't run themselves properly because they always expect a handout um, I don't know um, tough one how, how is it um, up at the Shea when, how often do you get up there not as often as I would like I mean um, it's a long we, trip <laughs> it's a long trip but, but also because we are in the National League they, they play plenty of games you know that are within you know a reasonable driving distance I mean you know, Torquay's not far, very far away. Yeovil's not very far away. Any games in London, it's pretty easy to get to. Um, so not not as much as, as as I used to when I I lived further north. Um, but um, it's not difficult to stay in touch. And um, uh, I have friends who I've known um, for um, uh, fifty years who give me a running commentary. Who were there um, every home game. Um, so <laughs> I have privileged access to what's going on. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I mean, that's look. I think you know, I support a, a Premiership club, and the magic has gone out of it for me. Um, with, you know, with the exceptional one or two big uh, games and, and memorable nights, but the the experience of going to the the match is is not what it used to be, um, and not really for any specific reason. But you know things change and especially when you build new stadiums and all that sort of stuff it, the experience changes and as does you know the overall football experience uh, and especially in this odd season as well we're going to be starting again in september i believe um yeah. and well i mean look you have you have you have lots of lots of lows and you have that you have great highs and you know one of the greatest highs i've ever had supporting um the shame members when we won the fa trophy at wembley just a a couple of years ago yeah um you know and 30 of us were there some of whom i've been at primary school with you know and we just had the most unbelievable day yeah, and so cool. i'm not i'm not ashamed to admit that I, I was absolutely in bits in in tears yeah of course. um and uh, and it was it was just something absolutely extraordinary it really was um and uh uh, worth all the, <laughs> the the fifty years of <laughs> yeah. I started supporting them when I was seven, and I'm now fifty-eight. So there you go. <laughs> well, look, that that's a great story. I just wanted uh, just going to let you get off, but I wanted to touch on one thing that, um, which again, I do talk about a bit when I do my uh, 
shameless vlogging and self-promotion to the world. Um, but it came up on Monday when I interviewed Georgie Frost, who is a, a yeah. sports and finance broadcaster. And yeah. um, we're speaking about the role of women in sport in general. Now, I wanted to get your take on something because um, media and marketing uh, and its various offshoots of, of PR and, and other bits and pieces like that, if you put it all under the same sort of umbrella, um, Apart from the old, the sort of bad ad industry days when I think it was the you know the, the drinking club of the of the men and so on, I believe have been pretty good with their inclusivity and uh, gender. I'm, I'm sure there's loads more to do. I have just joined the mentoring group in that field. Oh, good for you. Yeah, but to try and help. But it, it seems to me, um, you know, I'm thinking back to PR especially. You know, you walk into most PR offices and it's full of women because. I, for whatever reason that's the way that industry's gone um and you think of sport and you don't immediately think of of, of lots of women especially in high-powered executive positions and, and the one or two or more that are you know at the moment still are the exception since you kind of straddle both sides of you know rights holder you know previously professional sport and then agency world that obviously is more akin to the agencies of other sectors do you think we're doing enough in the sports sector to genuinely make a difference to the patchwork of our quilt as it were or or do you think there's there's more to do well look this uh, in in this market in the uk this really all started with london 2012 um because one the women did brilliantly and won a huge number of medals. Two, the poster girl of the games was Jess Ennis. Three, um, on the back of that, the BBC, Sky and BT Sport um, got into a competition to see who could outbehave um, the others when it came to showing women's sport and diversity generally. Yeah. Uh, that, that carries on. There is always more that you could do and and we're not talking just about a problem in sport we're talking about a problem in society but it's on the agenda it's going to stay on the agenda because there's enough people um, who want it to um, sport is is doing a much better job than it did um, and i'm sure it will continue to although times obviously are incredibly tough right now so um, women's sport needs to fight very hard for every penny that you can get, but it's 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 proving itself and constantly proves itself as 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 a proposition on screen. If you look at what you know the, the types of events that are going on, and women's football obviously is in a terrific place now. It's happening in other countries as well. Obviously, in the states, there was a different impetus because. Um, the, 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 the American women's soccer team had success um, way before the, 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 the current team's amazing success. And obviously they had the Women's World Cup yeah. and had amazing women sports people have been global stars for many, many years. So, so look, uh, is enough being done? No, because more can always be done. But we've got, the, we've got that movement that started eight, nine years ago. I mean, I personally hope 
that this moment that we're having now around black and ethnic minority communities that this this is going to create a real change there because again we've got a, a problem in in sport that is part of a problem in society as well and it's just as as big a problem and in in many ways it's a more it's a much more insidious problem because of the behaviors that it leads to um but sport can be an amazing trailblazer and and standard bearer um for societal change always has been and i hope it always will be if i, if I go back through my lifetime you know you just take the absolute evil that was apartheid and the role that sport played in bringing down that dreadful regime um, i'm ashamed to say as well that the, the role that sport played in propping up that regime certain sports um, cricket and rugby in particular um, who did not cover themselves in glory at the time but um, the role that the olympic movement played uh, in particular in, in in shutting apartheid south africa out, and then the role that sport played in the guise of the rugby world cup of that amazing moment with mandela nelson mandela wearing the um the springbok shirt and showing that a new south africa was trying to be born um what sport can do is 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 absolutely incredible and um i've got I've got no doubt that there are enough people around, great people around, good people around in sport who are going to make things like the representation of women, the representation of black people, um, part and parcel of what sport stands for as a progressive sport, in, uh, as a progressive force uh, in society. And long may that be so, frankly, because when sport stops doing that, it will be a very, very bad day. Wise words, and uh, I, I echo your sentiments entirely there. there there's more to be done, but um, the, the, the platform is there uh, from with which to do it. Uh, Tim, I'm going to let you go and jump in the sea before the sun <laughs> goes behind the clouds. Um, thank Pleasure. you very much for joining us. It's been it's a, pleasure. It's a pleasure. It's great. great. I know we, we could talk about this stuff for hours and hours, and no doubt <laughs> in the course of time, we will do so. Um, We'll see you next time. Um, dear listeners, um, thanks as ever for your attention and we'll catch up with you soon.